Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope eLearning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners and surgeons from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us. Let's get started. Today, we're tackling common misconceptions around obesity. There are countless myths about this condition. And in this, our first episode, we're going to address them head on. A common myth, for example, is that people with obesity are simply just lazy and that obesity is primarily caused by inactivity, a lack of physical exercise and or unhealthy dietary habits. Almost all preventative and therapeutic programs for obesity focus on curbing an unhealthy diet and physical inactivity and thereby neglect other possible contributors to the disease. An inactive lifestyle, whilst a factor in obesity, is not the be all and end all. Becoming more active can certainly aid weight loss maintenance. However, as we'll go on to explain, there is a lot more to obesity than inactivity. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Arya Sharma. Dr. Sharma is Professor Emeritus of Medicine and past chair in obesity research and management at the University of Alberta, Edmonton, Canada, and the past clinical co-chair of the Alberta Health Services Obesity Programme. He has authored and co-authored more than 450 scientific articles and has lectured widely on the etiology and management of obesity and related cardiovascular disorders. Dr. Sharma, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. We really appreciate your time. We know you're a very busy person, so thank you so much for joining. So I'd like to start off by just talking about some of the most common myths around obesity. So in your experience, what are some of the most common myths and misconceptions around the disease of obesity? Well, I think one of the most important concepts is uh, when we think of obesity itself as a, you know, as a disease, uh, you know, which is where we are getting to, uh, perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions around obesity is the idea that obesity is simply a risk factor for other diseases, when in fact, we actually today know that obesity itself is a chronic disease. Now, for that, we have to understand and appreciate the definition of obesity itself. Now, there is no doubt that obesity poses a health risk for most people, but obesity itself actually behaves like a chronic disease. And what we mean by that is that when people gain weight, It's not a question of simply losing the weight that you've gained and you'll be fine. Uh, But we actually know that there's a very complex biology behind the way that body regulates its weight. And so the problem in obesity really is that once you gain the weight, your body starts defending that extra weight. And so despite all your efforts of trying to lose the weight, your body is going to try to always take you back to that initial weight. And that's really what, what makes obesity once you have a generally sort of a lifelong problem for most people. Uh, And that's really where the chronicity of obesity comes in. So when you think about obesity, it's not simply a question of how do I lose weight, but it's, it's really a question of how do I keep the weight off? And that's where the real challenge is. And that's where we've learned that thinking of obesity as a chronic disease that is going to require long-term management uh, is really the way we need to think about obesity. Absolutely. So what are the main causes of obesity and why is it so difficult to keep the weight off? Well, obesity, like many complex diseases, actually very often starts with the genetics. So the genetic predisposition for weight gain is probably one of the key factors that determines whether somebody is going to develop obesity 
during the course of their lifetime or not. You know, we've known for a long time that genetics very much determines body shape, body size. Uh, and we've known for you know quite a while that there are some people who are quite genetically resistant to weight gain. So we probably all know someone who can eat, you know, this person who can eat whatever they want. They never seem to exercise uh, and they never seem to gain weight. In fact, a lot of these people are actually struggling to gain weight. And, and despite all their efforts, they're not able to gain weight. And we know that that is very genetic. On the other hand, we have people who are extremely susceptible to weight gain, where, you know, even the slightest caloric excess is going to cause weight gain. Uh, and for those individuals, it's, it's going to be a much harder issue to deal with. Now, having said that, you know, when you talk about genetic predisposition, we have to always remember that the environment is kind of part of that. So when you take someone who has a strong genetic predisposition for weight gain and you put that person into an environment where there's all kinds of drivers of weight gain, then obviously that person is going to be much more likely to develop excess weight and perhaps the consequences of excess weight than someone who lives in an environment where, you know, these factors are not at play. Uh, and so it's not a question of whether it's mainly genetics or it's mainly the environment. It's actually the combination of the two that generally works together to cause the problem. Hmm, interesting. So if somebody were to say to you, if obesity is genetic, why weren't rates of obesity so high 100 years ago? What would you say to that person? Well, I would say because the living conditions 100 years ago were very, were very different. The living conditions have changed, uh, but so has perhaps not the genetics, but you know what we refer to as epigenetics. That means uh, the way that our genes respond to the environment, that can change very, very rapidly. Uh, and there is, you know, quite a bit of evidence suggesting that perhaps people living today might, in fact, be much more prone to obesity uh, than they were, you know, several several decades ago. Uh, but having said that, there's no question that the environment that we live in is certainly very obesogenic uh, for a lot of reasons. And I'm not just talking about the food environment and the and the activity environment, but we're also talking about things like people not sleeping enough, high stress levels, high levels of mental health issues. Uh, in fact, when you look at obesity, all of the social determinants of health that we know are important for other chronic diseases, all of them are important for obesity uh, itself. And so uh, it's not just a question of saying, you know what, let's tell people to, let's teach people to eat healthy and then we solve the problem. In fact, what we've learned uh, through all of the prevention efforts that, uh, you know, those kind of ideas, even where they have been partly implemented and we could argue that they haven't been implemented, you know, to the full extent, uh, but even there, we have not been able to reverse the obesity epidemic, uh, you know, in, in any country that I'm aware of. Hmm, interesting. Okay, there's a few things I'd like to pick up on there. But I suppose the main one that I'd like to start with is you mentioned around epigenetics. So can you tell us a bit more about what role epigenetics play in obesity? Well, so epigenetics refers to genetic modification or modification to the genetic code that does not involve changing the actual code. So what, what epigenetics really does is it, it varies the expression of genes. So you might still have the exact same DNA that you got from your parents, but whether a certain gene is turned on or off, that's very much determined by the environment. Uh, and that's just how genetics work. So this epigenetic modification of the genetic code uh, appears to be something that, you know, could very much play a role in, in increased susceptibility towards obesity, especially when we start looking at children, because there's now even evidence that very early development, in fact, even even fetal development might, in fact, uh, you know, change the susceptibility or the predisposition for someone having obesity later in life. Okay, interesting. So when people say 
it might just be genetic or it might just be the environment. Actually, they're missing the point. It's it's an interplay between those two things together. Well, I mean, the whole issue around genetics is also uh, complex because there are uh, certainly monogenic forms of obesity where you have one gene and there's a problem with that gene. And so, you know, the, the, and usually these are this, this happens in children, uh, actually very early in childhood, you know, you end up gaining a very significant amount of weight. And all of that is pretty much comes down to this one gene that, you know, that's not working properly or that's missing or, uh, you know, is somehow not doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, those are very rare forms of obesity. They can be very, very severe. They start very early and there you can bring it down. And you could say that in many of those cases, the environment may almost be irrelevant. Uh, as long as there's access to food, that person with that gene is probably going to, you know, uh, gain a lot of weight. Now, most of the obesity that we see in the population is not due to single gene variants, um, but but rather, you know, to to small changes or small variants or common variants of genes uh, involved in the regulation of body weight. Now, we know that that is a very complex biological process, and there are probably hundreds, if not thousands, of genes involved in things like appetite and energy metabolism, and you know, even feeding behavior, and you know, the list goes on and on. And small variations in those genes can add up. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the issue there, on the one hand, is that because there may be so many genes involved, it's not probably going to be, uh, you know, um, gene therapy is probably not going to be the solution for most people uh, because there's just way too many genes involved. On the other hand, it does uh, very much explain why there's so much variability in, in predisposition to obesity. Uh, and we know this from studies where you take people, you put them in the exact same environment, you give them the same number of excess calories. One guy, you know, gains 20 pounds and the other person pretty much stays the same. And, uh, you know, those differences are probably mostly genetic. Uh, although there are now discussions about other factors that might be contributing, uh, not least uh, the microbiome that might very much uh, play a role in this uh, because we now understand that the microbiome, for example, plays a role in how many calories you might actually be extracting from the food you eat. Okay. I mean, it's clearly a very complex multifactorial issue. I suppose what I'm wondering then is bearing in mind that not everybody out there is a medical practitioner. And even those that are don't necessarily understand these concepts all of the time. How do we change that really pervasive narrative that it is simply a case of eat less and move more? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that you're dealing with a biological issue, right? The body is very efficient in terms of regulating its body weight. In fact, one must say the body is very efficient and does a really good job of defending its body weight. Uh, and that has always been important to the body because at any time when you start losing body weight, that is generally means that there's something wrong and your body has to be able to resist that. So if you take someone and put them in an environment where the calories are not available for whatever reason, or they're unable to take up those calories and they start losing weight, there have to be defense mechanisms that will limit the amount of weight loss. And there have to be mechanisms in place for recovery, which means that the minute they have access to food again, uh, those energy stores, which were depleted uh, would very quickly fill up again. And so you ultimately come back to the weight that you started out with. And that's, a, you know, that's pure biology. Uh, and that's unfortunately what you're up against every time you try to lose weight. So yes, I can go on a diet. Yes, I can lose weight. and uh, But the minute I stop that or even ease my efforts there, uh, my body's going to do what it does. And that is try to replenish those, those energy stores uh, as fast as it can. Uh, and that is, essentially brings me back to the weight that I started out with. And so this is so we are back to this biological driver 
uh, of, of weight maintenance, if you will, which really proves to be the main challenge in long-term management of obesity. On what scale is that problem then? So are you able to give you know a percentage of how many people are likely to regain weight after weight loss? Well, what we've learned from all of the studies that have been done, uh, trying to use lifestyle measures. So you're trying to use you know diet and exercise as your main your main treatment is that on average, when you look at results after two, three, four, five years, if people can lose about, you know, somewhere between three to 5% of their body weight is usually where these studies range in, uh, which means that if you're 200 pounds and if at the end of, you know, your lifestyle changes two years later, you're say, uh, you know, 190 pounds, which is a 10 pound weight loss. So that's 5%. So you've done pretty well. Now that is, you know, that has its benefits. Uh, and maybe for some people that is all they need and, you know, to improve their metabolism. But for a lot of people, you know, a 5% weight loss is simply not going to cut it and they're going to need more weight loss than that. And there, uh, you know, the literature consistently shows that long-term weight loss that goes beyond the 5% is, is going to be really difficult to sustain for most people. So now you're moving into the 10% range and uh, and in fact, we have to admit that, you know, the body does such a good job of defending its body weight that even with the most drastic treatment that you can think of, which happens to be bariatric surgery, which, by the way, is also the most effective treatment, the average weight loss long term is about 20 to 30 percent. So even those patients with this drastic treatment uh, are not losing, you know, half their body weight. And many who've had bariatric surgery are are at risk of weight regain, and many have to struggle to keep the weight off, although that right now is the best treatment that we have. And fortunately, most patients who have bariatric surgery actually do quite well uh, in the long term. Uh, but that, again, you know, just makes the case for how difficult it is to work against the biology, which is always trying to restore your body weight back to where you started from. Okay. So I suppose a counter argument that might be made is if somebody's weight is going to go back to its original point or close to its original point, is that not simply the natural state of that person's body? And that ties back to what you said at the start of the call, you know, obesity in and of itself, why is that necessarily a problem if it's not leading to other comorbidities? Well, so here we have to make the differentiation between body fat, uh, you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing, and whether or not that body fat is actually impairing your health. So we know that there are large people and they might have quite a bit of body fat, but they don't seem to have a lot of health problems as a result of the you know, that excess body fat. Uh, and generally, these are people where you will find that most of the fat is located, uh, you know, within the skin or, or underneath the skin. So we talk about subcutaneous fat. Very often, the fat is located in the lower part of the body. Uh, so large thighs, large hips, that's where the fat is. And a lot of these people with that type of fat distribution, despite having you know, what you might consider excess body fat uh, may actually be quite healthy. On the other hand, you've got people who are very, very sensitive to the metabolic effects of weight gain. And so here we're talking about people who might, you know, they might gain one or two uh, kilograms, you know, which is not a lot of weight, really. Uh, you know, you're talking about two to four to five pounds. But if those two to three to four to five pounds are located within the abdomen, for example, 
you're going to be much more likely to develop metabolic problems. So one of the issues we have with obesity is that it's not the amount of body fat that determines whether or not that's going to affect your health or not. It's actually the location and nature of that fat that is going to very much determine whether or not you are having health consequences from excess weight. You know, that's also what's, you know, one of the things that makes the definition of obesity a bit more challenging is that it's not enough to know how much body fat someone has in order to know whether that person also has uh, health issues related to the body fat. And so, uh, you know, it turns out that to make the diagnosis of obesity, you actually end up, have to end up going to a doctor's office or you're going to have to have some medical person, you know, do the tests and, uh, you know, and figure out whether or not you actually have a health problem that's been caused by by excess body fat. Uh, And that's really when, you know, you should start using the term obesity in a clinical context. Okay. So I suppose I take from that that something like BMI in and of itself is not sufficient for diagnosing diagnosing obesity. Well, body mass index, I mean, you know, body mass index is a number that you calculate based on height and weight. And so really it's, it's, it's a measure of size. So body mass index will tell me how big you are, but it will never tell me how sick you are. And why do you consider it important that obesity is framed as a disease? Well, that has to do with the, I mean, for one, it has to do with treatment access. Uh, if it's not a disease, well, then this is not something you should be going to your doctor with. Uh, and then it's not, it's not something that needs to be treated, right? So, you know, in order to qualify for treatment, we've got to be talking about something that actually is a disease entity. Now, there is no real definition of what is a disease other than, you know, something that impairs health and that might make you need to seek medical help. In fact, that's pretty much the definition of disease. And so if you're saying it's not a disease, well, then, you know, there's really no reason to go to your doctor with this. And which really means that there's no reason to get treatment for this, because if it's not a disease, it's not a disease. And being very clear about the fact that when you have obesity and we're talking about excess body fat that is actually impairing your health, by calling that a disease, we are actually, you know, saying this is something that is affecting your health and that you're probably going to need professional help with. And that's really, you know, all that calling it a disease matters for is to say, you know, this is something that you are probably going to, uh, you know, have to see a medical person for treatment. Now, you know, some people can figure out how to treat it for themselves. You know, people do this well with other diseases, you know, but 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 certainly uh, saying this is a disease that, that you're probably going to be living with for a long time because it's a chronic disease. If it's not treated, it's probably going to get worse. And if you have a treatment that works, that treatment is probably going to have to be continued. Otherwise, you know, the symptoms are just going to come back. You know, that all fits with the concept of a disease. Uh, Now, this is not saying that everybody who has excess weight or everybody who has a higher BMI is automatically sick and should go and see their doctors. Uh, Although they probably should go to see their doctor to make sure everything is fine. But if everything is fine, then I would not consider them as having obesity. And for people who may be resistant to the concept of obesity being a disease or being classified as a disease... And for people with obesity who require treatment who feel that way, how do you encourage those people to seek treatment? Well, I mean, it comes down to the question of whether or not it's impairing your health. Now, some people might have health impairments that they're not aware of. Uh, For example, if you take hypertension as a health impairment, it might very well be that you have high blood pressure that's been caused by your excess weight. And that may be something that you're completely unaware of uh, until you go to a doctor's office and get your blood pressure taken. Uh, So it does take a visit to your doctor's office to figure out whether or not you might actually have that health impairment because not all health impairments related to excess body weight are immediately evident. I mean, you could say the same for fatty liver disease, uh, which is one of the more common problems that you see in people with excess weight. Uh, 
causes no symptoms, causes no problems. And if you're not going to go see a doctor, uh, you know, and get some liver function tests done or get, get an ultrasound, it's not something that you're going to discover till it starts, you know, causing problems. And that's usually then a very advanced stage of liver disease. So, so it is going to take a visit to the doctor's office to figure out whether someone or not uh, someone has health impairments due to excess weight or not. And when somebody has been diagnosed as having obesity, maybe having been diagnosed as having some comorbidities as well, you know, given the com- complexity of all the things we've discussed, given the body's tendency to go back to its original weight, what would you say are the optimal manage- management strategies from a healthcare professional's perspective? Well, the first strategy, of course, is the way you approach your patient. And we know that that any issue related to body shape, body size, body weight is a sensitive issue, and which means that any conversation about body weight uh, has to be has to take that into account. Uh, and so you have to make sure that your approach is non-judgmental, that you you know ask for permission from your patient that this is something that the patient is even ready and wants to talk about. and And it's important to shy away from simplistic advice. Uh, you know, just eat less, move more, you'll be fine, that kind of stuff. Uh, or in fact, any advice before you've done a full assessment. You know, without a full assessment, I, I, I wouldn't know what the what's actually driving obesity in your case. And, you know, simply telling you to eat less and move more would be like, you know, like telling someone who has depression, you know what, your problem is you need to cheer up. Uh, it's simply not effective. Uh, and it doesn't work in the long term. So the general process is you, you start the conversation um, being very sensitive to the issue uh, that this is a sensitive issue. And uh, you always want to be non-judgmental. I'm not here to judge my patient. I'm not here to shame my patient. I'm not here to blame my patient. I'm not here to threaten my patient. Uh, I just want to understand what the possible drivers of excess weight here are. Uh, I want to understand what the consequences of excess weight in this person are. Uh, And then based on that and my understanding of medicine, I'm here to give you advice. uh, And then eventually we agree on a treatment path. And then, you know, I'm here to support you. Uh, So that's the general approach. Now that's, you know, that should be the general approach for any chronic disease and obesity is no exception. And do you feel that most healthcare professionals, I know this is a very broad question, but do you feel that most healthcare professionals have the necessary skills to effectively treat and manage obesity? And if not, how can they better develop and improve those skills? Well, unfortunately, most clinicians do not have the skills. In fact, they, you know, they might have the skills, they just don't have the knowledge because obesity has generally been neglected as a subject in medical school. So yes, you do learn about obesity being bad for you and you, you, know, you learn about all of the health risks. But I don't, you know, when I think back to my time in medical school, I don't remember anybody ever teaching me the physiology of weight regulation. And we've learned so much about that today. You know, we recognize the complexity of both making the diagnosis of obesity, understanding the drivers, and then addressing those drivers, and also understanding the biology of obesity. And that is something that is still not really being taught in medical school, the way that we teach you know, young doctors to treat other conditions. So if you think of all the, you know, hours that you have to spend in medical school learning about diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and lung disease and liver disease, uh, we don't spend even a fraction of that time on learning how to manage obesity. Why do you think that is? That seems quite preposterous from an outsider's perspective that it's not covered in medical curricula. Why would that be? And I suppose, how can we change that? Well, I think a lot of it comes back to this whole discussion that we have about you know, obesity as a disease. If it's not a disease, why do I need to learn about it, right? Uh, you know, I'm in medical school and what they teach in medical school is basically disease management, how to how to make a diagnosis and how to manage a disease. And if you're saying obesity is not a disease, well then, you know, really it's not my problem. So 
Uh, I think it's got neglected there. I also think that because, you know, a lot of the science about how the body regulates its body weight, you know, has developed in the last 20, 30 years, this notion that, um, you know, obesity is simply a matter of calories in and calories out. And if I just tell you to eat a healthy diet and, uh, you know, it's something you could do on your own. And so, so these simplistic notions about uh, energy and in and energy out is still quite pervasive. Uh, when in fact we are actually dealing with, you know, perhaps one of the most complex biological systems there is that is so essential to to human survival, and that is that is the system that actually regulates your energy balance and your energy stores, and you know, and and and, and if you think of some of the key components of the system, like leptin, for example, you know, leptin was only discovered about thirty years ago. Now that is a very short term and short time in terms of medical education. Uh, to find its way into textbooks, into the curriculum, and then the clinical applications of that knowledge, uh, and then training doctors to actually use it. You know, you know that's a long road. Although that road, you, you know, is something that we can go is a path we can go down because we've done this for a lot of other diseases. You know, where it just becomes an essential part of medical training. And I think that today a lot of people have recognized that we have to do a much better job of, of teaching young doctors and teaching professionals about the complex science of obesity uh, and getting them to understand that dealing with obesity is going to be a lot more complex than telling people to eat less and move more. Mm, that's really interesting. So by reframing obesity as a disease, that would be the first step towards getting obesity included in more medical curricula and thereby improving treatment and management around the world. How would we how would you approach people who are resistant to that idea? For example, people may some people may be affronted by the idea that obesity is a disease. How would you approach that and respond to that? Well, I mean, you can there's always going to be people resistant to ideas. I mean, you know, we've got the COVID-19 situation where a lot of people think it's a big, you know, it's a big conspiracy. Well, you're always going to have those people, you know, who even the best arguments are not going to convince because they simply don't want to believe it you know, or have a different take on the situation. So you're not going to convince everybody. But I do think that the science pretty much speaks to itself. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take more than a couple of conversations with someone who actually has obesity and is seeking help to understand that this is a major health problem and that, yes, obesity does cause a lot of health problems in a lot of people. Completely agree. And it seems like that point that you mentioned earlier around the sensitivity of the subject is key as well. I think we need to realize that this is something that needs to be approached sensitively and compassionately in order to successfully put across that narrative. Would you agree? Absolutely. Okay, so there's an awful lot to unpack there, and it's a really fascinating and complex issue. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap things up there, but Arya, if, if people want to find out more about these topics, where can they go to learn more and to read more about what we've discussed today? Well, there's a lot of good information on obesity that can be found on the websites of the various professional organizations. So, uh, for example, if you're in the U.S., you'd have the Obesity Society. You know, if you were anywhere else in the world, we've got the World Obesity Federation and their website that provides a lot of information about obesity. Uh, and there's other credible sources, uh, you know, not least perhaps my own website, you know, where I regularly blog about obesity and, you know, where we talk about the science of obesity. So there is a lot of information out there, but you want to make sure that when you, when you read about obesity, you want to go to those credible sources. And so uh, I would say start with the professional organizations, the Obesity Society, the World Obesity Federation, the European Association for the Study of Obesity. That's where, what I would consider the credible you know, starting, starting points. And how do we ensure that the information that we do read is credible? And how do we avoid misinformation on obesity? 
Well, that's going to be really hard because obesity or let me put it this way, weight loss is big business. So there's all kinds of people out there trying to sell you all kinds of things. Uh, there's lots of people claiming to have found the cure and have found the, you know, they have the diet that works and everybody else does not. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to weight management, perhaps even more misinformation than there already is uh, related to some of the other diseases uh, where there's also a lot of misinformation. So once again, I would start with the, I would start with the associations and the, and the professional organizations that are out there. Uh, there's a lot of health charities that are out there that provide pretty good information. The Obesity Canada website, for example, you know, has a lot of information about obesity uh, that's credible, that's vetted by experts. Those are the places where I would, you know, go first before, you know, I went to some commercial entity that's going to try to sell me a supplement or some kind of an exercise program or some kind of a diet book or, you know, something else. Excellent advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sharma, for joining us today. It's been a really fascinating conversation and there's a lot to take away. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. We're now going to hear a few minutes from Susie Burney, a patient living with obesity. These patient perspectives, such as Susie's, will feature in each episode of the podcast to give us invaluable insight and first-hand testimony. It's over to you, Susie. Hi, my name is Susie Burney and I live in Dublin, Ireland, and I live with obesity. And that is something that I didn't fully realise until later in life, but I would have always been aware of that I, I had struggles with my weight, which is which is a different thing. But Growing up, I had a food disorder, avoidance, restrictive food intake disorder, which made it very difficult for eating um, because I have a very limited list of foods that I eat. Um, so I always assumed that this was the major problem in, in me uh, gaining weight because I don't eat vegetables, don't eat fruit, don't eat many healthy, healthier options. Um, but I was always very, very physically active very sporty, did a lot of activity growing up, did many sports, swam competitively and was very fit. So my weight didn't affect my, my life for a long time, uh, even though I tried multiple methods of weight loss. Um, when, when my weight started to become a problem really was when I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And I never had really felt fear about my weight up to that point, despite many methods of, of weight loss up to then. But my GP also was that was when he decided to address this further. And I was referred to a weight management service in Dublin where I met the multidisciplinary team and I followed my, my route there. During this time, I joined a patient support group and that began my journey with advocacy um, it, it took a few years, but I became representative uh, in Europe for for Ireland with the uh, IASO Patient Council, which is now the European Coalition for People Who Live With Obesity, which I'm now the secretary of. And with meeting many other patients from across Europe, I soon realized that in Ireland we, we needed patients to to help each other more, basically, and have a voice and so we worked to build a patient-led organization, which is now called the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity, which, which I lead here in Ireland. So I'm passionate about advocacy and I'm passionate about sharing the experiences of people who live with obesity and how, how that has to change in the narrative um, to improve people's lives. One major misconception that is had, and this links in with the eat less, move more theory, which is which is now changing, thankfully, with healthcare providers and society, 
is that people living with obesity aren't active and don't take physical activity as part of their life. Also, that they don't take res personal responsibility for their health or their weight. Um, for me, I, as I mentioned, I was very physically active. And one of the barriers that faces you is facing going to places where you can be physically active, where you're not judged. And I wanted to go to the gym and it actually took me six months to decide to walk in the door. I had to build myself up to it. And I did. And you have an initiation to get in and you fill out forms and your blood pressure is checked and your history is, is asked. And the guy who was doing my initiation said to me in very patronizing voice, I want you to reach and touch your toes and see how flexible you are and don't hurt yourself. And if you can get to your knees, that'll be fine now. Please don't hurt yourself. And I stood up and I reached down and I placed the palm of my hands on the floor and held it there for a couple of seconds and stood back up. I think I possibly weighed about 150 kilos and I could see the shock on his face because he didn't expect that. And he actually apologized and said, I judged you. I am really so sorry. Will we start again? And he treated me different then, but it was a shock for me too, because I was always physically active. It was always a huge part of my life, but I was gaining weight steadily over the years where I would gain three stone, lose two stone, gain four stone. And it was a constant battle. So I did go to the gym regularly. I did swim three or four days a week regularly at my heaviest weight. So this is a major barrier for people with obesity. I know of people uh, in our support groups who will talk about living in rural Ireland where they're expected to go walking. But when they walk outside their door, they live on a country road where it's not safe to walk. There's no path. So we've one lady now who will drive to a local track, which on a track, it's circular. So her car is parked nearby where she knows if the arthritis in her knee kicks in, she can stop and go back to her car at any point because she's on this circular track and she will do her best whether she does three laps or 10 laps. She sees it as a huge achievement to get to that track today. So people living with obesity do take personal responsibility, but they also need support and professional help. And every single person who lives with obesity is individual and unique. And it is so easy to categorize and put people into boxes. So for instance, like when people are, are measurements are taken, whether it's at a healthcare appointment or even in the gym, your BMI is often mentioned, but BMI is only one indicator of your size. And BMI is not going to tell you who Susie Bernie is. Because if I walk into a new healthcare provider, they might've treated somebody with type two diabetes before, but they haven't treated Susie Bernie before who has a food disorder, polycystic ovaries, slight depression, a serious knee injury, and all of my list of barriers, they've never heard my story before. And this is what we need to see happen more is that healthcare providers see beyond the weight and see, and see the person and listen to the person when they're speaking to them about their health, because it is easy to see the weight and, and assume and judge. To break down some of these misconceptions and to address some of these myths that are there for people who live with obesity, is to classify obesity as a disease. And this means that stigma in particular can no longer be acceptable. This means that discrimination, bias, judgments will all have to be addressed, whether it's in the healthcare, in the workplace, in society, or in healthcare. Treatments 
should be made available for people if it is classed as a disease, but not just that they're made available and accessible, but in a timely fashion, that people don't have to wait years to get the treatment they need. I know many people in our support groups, it's in their 30s and their 40s before they get that quality of life back from treatments for obesity. And not one treatment will suit all. So this is why stigma is so important to be addressed and why classifying obesity as a disease needs to be addressed. And that in turn will then help with these misconceptions and people living with obesity will have better lives. This has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Alexander. See you on the next episode. Thank you.